Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, January 17th, 2021, and this is show number 819. Well, before we get this show started, I'm going to say hi to Jason Castingway, and uh, all I'm going to say is that Tyson made me do that. This week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, we've got another installment of Programming by Stealth. And in this one, Bart teaches us how to deal with conflicts in branches of our code when we're using Git as a version control system. You know, he's been purposely only changing one thing at a time in our code before now, but it's time to face the reality of when two branches change the same line in the same file. Now, I've been terrified of this topic for a long time, but Bart shows us how easy it is to see exactly what the conflict is, how you can back out of merging it if you make it a pig's breakfast of it, as he says, and how to resolve your conflicts without fear. I have to tell you, it's not nearly as terrifying as I thought it would be. You can find Bart's amazing tutorial show notes, of course, over at pbs.bartificer.net, and you can subscribe to uh, Programming by Stealth by looking for it in your podcatcher of choice. The app Bartender has been one of my mission-critical apps on my Macs for many years. I basically can't stand to use a Mac that doesn't have Bartender on it. Without Bartender, I wouldn't have room for all of my menu bar items, even though I use a 16-inch MacBook Pro. Well, it turns out Bartender 4 from MacBartender.com is out in public beta right now. This has been redesigned and is only for macOS Big Sur. My video tutorial on Bartender 4 has just been released on Screencast Online, where I teach the viewers how to use all of the amazing new features of this awesome app. I know that I'm sounding really superfluous and so excited about this app, but I really love Bartender. I have to say, I'm actually really bummed that all of my tools are not yet ready for Big Sur because I really miss these new features in Bartender 4 on my main machine. I've included a teaser video of the tutorial in the show notes, and if you want to watch the entire thing, go to screencastonline.com and find the Bartender 4 tutorial. From there, you can either start the free seven-day trial of the service, or you know what? Just give in and become a member. You know you're going to do it eventually anyway, so just get it over with and join up. A few weeks ago, I told you that the M1 Mac Mini was pretty awesome, but that shortly after getting it, it got into a boot loop. Basically, I tried to reboot, and it just kept rebooting and rebooting and rebooting. Eventually, I ended up in system recovery, and it seemed to ask me to reinstall the operating system, and I was, I was pretty annoyed that a brand new system, I mean, literally in less than a week, I had to reinstall the operating system. I think I know now why that happened, and I'm pretty sure I didn't need to reinstall the OS after all. I think I left you with a discouraging view of the M1 Mac Mini, and that wasn't really fair. I think there still is a problem, but it's a different problem. I'm still super excited about the speed of the M1, and I noticed that speed in really unexpected ways. For example, deleting files is like using a bug zapper. I never thought of deleting files as a slow operation, but with the M1, the files just kind of seem to vaporize, just to like, blink, they're gone. It's really, really fast. And it's funny, it makes me want to just delete more files because it's really fun. Another thing I've noticed in Speed is how instantaneous it is to send an email from Mail.app. It's so fast, you might actually think it failed to send. I also really like the look and feel of Big Sur, so I've really been enjoying using the M1 Mac Mini. I've started using the Mac Mini for as many tasks as I can. 
Instead of my normal, incredibly disciplined method of going through my iThoughts mind map from toketaware.com and marching through installing my mission-critical apps, I've just been flinging apps on the Mac Mini as I have the need. At some point, though, I'm going to have to go back to the mind map and figure out if I need to rearrange what I think is mission-critical, because I may find out some stuff really isn't based on this flinging things on as I need them. I need to keep that mind map up to date for when I eventually do a clean install of Big Sur on my 16-inch MacBook Pro. It's only been a year, but I load so much garbage that it's really good for me once a year to be disciplined and scrape it all off and start over. I've mentioned many times that my most mission-critical software is everything Rogue Amoeba sells. You wouldn't hear the podcast without Audio Hijack, I wouldn't be able to control my audio in the live show without SoundSource, and I wouldn't be able to route my microphone and my audio recording software to the live show without Loopback. Not only are these apps mission-critical, they're also super fun to reinstall because they throw confetti when you enter your license registration. You know, I, I kind of wish all apps made you feel so appreciated when you entered your license number. Well, all of Rogue Amoeba's apps require something called Audio Capture Engine, or ACE. ACE is the secret sauce that lets you hijack audio from Safari and record the sound and combine apps and physical devices into virtual audio sources. In other words, ACE is a mission-critical component for everything I do to create the podcast. Now, ACE is not a kernel extension, but I can't tell you exactly what it is. I can tell you that Apple treats it as a kernel extension. So kernel extensions operate at the very lowest level of the operating system, also known as the kernel. Apple has been very slowly but surely locking down the method for applications to access the kernel in order to improve our security, and in macOS Big Sur, they've taken it even further. If you're on an M1 Mac, uh, M1 Mac with Big Sur, it requires a whole new digital dance to enable a kernel extension. Now, my brand spanking new Universal Audio, uh, I'll get this right, Universal Audio Apollo Solo Thunderbolt interface for my microphone has drivers that are real kernel extensions. The Apollo Solo is not yet certified to work with the M1, but I still wanted to bleed on the edge and see if I could get it to work. It was clear I needed to know how to install kernel extensions to run the podcast from an M1 Mac. Rogue Amoeba provides a step-by-step -step guide on how to enable ACE on an Intel Mac and on an M1 Mac with the new digital dance I mentioned. On the Intel Macs, you simply have to enable the extension from Rogue Amoeba in System Preferences, do a reboot, and you're done. But on the M1 Macs, it's quite a bit more complicated. On the M1s, you shut down the Mac and then boot into Recovery. That means holding down the power button on a Mac Mini or the Touch ID button on a notebook until the device reboots. From there, you choose Utilities and Startup, startup Security Utility. By default, the Startup Security is set to Full Security, and it says, This ensures that only your current OS or signed operating system software currently trusted by Apple can run. This mode requires a network connection at software installation time. Now, this mode does not allow us to install kernel extensions. Instead, we need to switch to reduced security, which gives us an option to allow user management of kernel extensions from identified developers. Now, at first you're going to think, wow, this is a really bad idea. They've got this high level of security and we're going to turn it off. But keep in mind two things. This reduced security is the same level of security as you had on Catalina. But what if you want your cake and to eat it too? You want increased level of security of Big Sur, but you also want to run your kernel extensions. Well, I learned from Paul Kafasis, CEO of Rogue Amoeba, that you can, after rebooting to install the kernel extension, 
boot into recovery again and set the security back up to full security. Bart and I got into an interesting discussion about whether or not to put it back to full security. I assumed that would be Bart's recommendation, but he said, you know, I would probably leave it at reduced security. He had a perfectly reasonable explanation of this crazy idea. His personal machine is a 27-inch iMac with a Fusion drive, so those are not exactly your snappiest drives around. This means he avoids rebooting at all costs. He says he runs weeks and weeks without rebooting. I think I only learned recently that he had a Fusion drive because I used to complain to him going, ah, just reboot, you know, when something would be messed up, and he would refuse, but now I understand why. For his situation, ever having to reboot to flip that switch to reduce security and back is a non-starter. However, with the M1 and the fastest SSD I've ever used, rebooting for me is only a matter of, you know, a minute or two, literally. So make your own decision on this one based on your tolerance for reboot times and your security preferences. So now back to my story. After following Rogue Amoeba's instructions on rebooting and changing the security policy, I've put a link to Apple's instructions so you can see it all there, I needed to reboot to have the changes take effect. But when I rebooted, I ended up in that boot loop I told you about last time. This time I pinged Stephen Getz while we were, I was in the middle of this boot loop, and he found some articles saying that the M1s sometimes get confused about their startup disk. The last time I ran into this, I went into recovery, and that's where I got confused and thought it was telling me I had to reinstall the OS. I really definitely did not have to do this. Stephen suggested I get back into recovery and look for the option to set the startup disk. When I opened the startup disk, it showed that I had two disks mounted, the M1's internal disk and a bootable backup SSD of Catalina. Now that bootable backup SSD of Catalina can't boot the M1. The M1 can't boot into Catalina. It's just happened to be plugged into my, uh, my dock and uh, that's the one that I use on my MacBook Pro when it's plugged into the dock. So it didn't have anything to do with it. It just happened to be plugged in. So I initially assumed that the M1 was confused by this Catalina volume, and that's why it didn't know from which volume to boot. I actively chose the internal volume as the startup disk, unmounted the Catalina volume, and restarted, and all was right with the world. However, a few days later, I needed to reboot again for some other reason, and even without the Catalina volume mounted, I got into the boot loop again. So I had to go into recovery and tell it to boot, from the only volume it could now see. I don't know why I was confused. It was right there. It's the only thing it had available. You can imagine that I really hesitate to reboot this Mac now, but I think I found a way to force it to reboot properly. In System Preferences Startup Disk, if you unlock to make changes, you're given a restart button. So if I click on, I mean, it's already selected, the only drive there, because it's the only drive, that's the only thing it can be on. If I use that restart button instead of the one under the Apple logo, the M1 doesn't get into the boot loop. I'm not sure I'll ever know if the problem is fixed, uh, like if an update comes to macOS to fix it, because I hate that boot loop so much, I'll probably always keep using the startup disk trick forever to reboot. Now, in case you're wondering, installing the kernel extension for my fancy pants new mic interface did not work. So I guess they were serious about not certifying it yet. I'm loving this M1 so much though that I pulled out my trusty Shure MVI USB mic interface and I've been using that instead so I could play with the new hotness. I'm not able to do the live show from the M1, but I did record my chit chat across the ponds uh, this week, uh, or I said that in plural, my chit chat across the pond and security bits with the new hotness. 
Now, I'm not certain that the baggage that comes with that Thunderbolt interface from Universal Audio is going to be worth it for the slightly cleaner audio and zero latency. I just, I don't know. I mean, they don't have the drivers out and I don't know. There's a lot of problems with it. So I'm still on the fence of whether I'm going to go back. I'm hearing a slight clicking on uh, on the Sure MVI right now doing the live show. So uh, now I miss the Thunderbolt interface. So I got to figure out what to do. But anyway, they haven't come out with a new driver, so I don't have to make a decision just yet. But I do want to bottom line it. The M1 is as dreamy as I would hope it would be. And I'm really liking just about everything about macOS Big Sur. On Friday, I had the great fun of being on the Daily Tech News show again with Tom Merritt, Sarah Lane, and Roger Chang. And uh, in this, we talked about a whole bunch of uh, you know cool tech news like they always do. But we got into a little bit of a deep dive on some hot rumors from Ming-Chi Kuo about new M1-based MacBook Pro models coming, which I'm totally excited about. Have you heard? They're talking a 14 and a 16-inch screen. Maybe 14 would be big enough for me. Anyway, there were a bunch of cool rumors, but uh, the part of the topic that I got to lead was... I talked about some of the things I learned at CES this year, and um, I had a really good time. So you guys should go check it out in your podcatcher of choice. Look for Daily Tech News Show. And uh, of course, there's a link in the show notes. I forgot to mention at the front of the show, but last week on Chit Chat Across the Pond, when we had Mike Price on explaining what Keyboard Maestro is and how he got to learning to use it, he mentioned in the episode that Keyboard Maestro seems accessible with voiceover. We got some feedback on this from good friend of the show, Keith Watson. Here's what he wrote. Love the Keyboard Maestro segments. Very informative. You mentioned that you thought Keyboard Maestro might be accessible using voiceover. Our friend Scott Howell and I worked very closely with Peter, the developer, to ensure that it is and remains so. We've been on the beta cycle since version 4 and sent comments and issues to Peter on a regular basis. He's extremely conscientious about accessibility and is more than willing to fix anything that may fall through the cracks. I recently went on a cleaning spree and reduced my macro count from around 230 to 163, although that will increase after importing Grumpy's macros after I finish this email. As a voiceover user who cannot use a pointer, I absolutely cannot live without Keyboard Maestro. After a nuke and pave, it is the second install I perform. One password beats it out only because I need to retrieve the license for Keyboard Maestro. It's to the point where if I have to work on my family's Macs, I get super frustrated that things don't work. Then I sit back, sigh, and realize that Keyboard Maestro is not installed. Arg! Now I have to continue like an animal. Anyway, I just wanted to add my two cents about how accessible Keyboard Maestro is and give a shout out to Peter for his willingness to add and maintain voiceover in his product. Can't sing his praises loud enough. Love the shows and all that you do. Thank you so much. You always bring a ray of sunshine into my week. Well, I think that's fantastic. I uh, I actually didn't realize that it was that accessible. So I, I really appreciate you writing in, Keith, and letting us know about that. That's fantastic. Keith spent a, a little bit of time trying to tell me about some of the, the uh, macros that he creates. And it's crazy what he can do. I mean, it's so many things beyond my imagination. Um, I got I to gotta really learn more. I keep saying I'm going to learn more and get good at it. I'm not yet, though. Quite a few years back, Steve and I were at CES and hanging out with our friend Joe LaGreca. I was bemoaning how I wasn't happy with the $100 D-Link Omna security camera I bought, and he suggested we take a look at the WiseCam. Fast forward to today, and we now have four indoor WiseCams, two outdoor WiseCams, a Wise sensor on the mailbox, three Wise bulbs, two Wise motion sensors, and two Wise switches. 
The only reason I don't have the Y scale is because I already had a smart scale, so I gave it to Lindsay after I tested it out. When they partnered with some companies to get no-touch digital thermometers and face masks, uh, and when things first started to get heated up and it was really hard to get those things, I bought both of them from Wise. But I have something to confess, that I think the shine has gone off Wise for me. I've been wondering about the company as they diversified into a crazy number of products. They now make a home monitoring security service, smartwatch, a smart band, an outdoor plug, a sprinkler controller, a robot vacuum, thermostat, noise-canceling headphones, smart lock, and a video doorbell. They even have Wise socks, but those are actually cool. I was also disenchanted with their service when I took my new WiseCam outdoor camping. I spent hours and hours and hours trying to get it into the right mode so that I could use it without an internet connection. I did all that before I left, and I got it working, yet when we got out to Joshua Tree, it demanded that I log into the service to use the app. I had to climb up really high on top of the rocks to get a sliver of a bar to log in, and then it didn't end up recording a darn thing while we were there. Their service was completely worthless to try to figure out why it didn't work. So this week, I cheated on Wise. Over the years, I've come to realize that what makes a smart home smart is when you don't have to tell it what to do. Maybe you program your devices ahead of time, or maybe they just figure it out on their own. But yelling, hey, A-lady, turn on the hallway light, is not my idea of a smart home. When I leave my house on one of my long walks and my August lock locks behind me, that's a smart home. When my car unlocks, when I walk up to it, that's smart. In 2017, Denise did a guest post for the NoCellacast about the Hue motion sensor that she uses to trigger her Hue lights to go on when she enters a room and off when she leaves. Based on her recommendation, I bought one for our family room and it works great. I already had the expensive Hue bulbs when she told us about this, and while I could turn them on and off with an app, having them simply know what to do without my daily intervention is what made them smart. You can even, with the Hue uh, app and, and with Home, you can tell it to turn on and off with motion at different times of the day. So they don't turn on when we walk in in the middle of the day, but they do at night. In mid-2019, Wise came out with the Wise Sense Kit for only 20 bucks. This kit comes with two proximity sensors, one motion sensor, and a bridge to connect them to Wi-Fi. Now, the bridge isn't some big old thing you got to plug into your router. It's a small square that you plug into the back of your Wisecams via their USB port. You only need one. You do some voodoo to get the sensor to talk to the bridge, and now you have a motion sensor trigger for the $8 Wise bulbs. Since I already had the camera, that meant I was out a total of $36 for the sensor and two bulbs. But here's the problem. While the Wise Sense does technically work to turn on the lights when I go into my studio, it loses connection to the bridge from time to time. I walk in and the lights don't come on. I look at the Wise app and there's a cloud with a line through it next to the sensor telling me that the sensor's offline. Now they've got a hole in the top of it where I can poke it with a paperclip, which I do about 12 times over the following two days each time before I remember that I have to go mess with the bridge in order to fix it. The bridge is in a Wise cam above the front window of our house, about eight feet off the ground. So I have to perilously stand on the back of the couch to reach the bridge in order to reset it. If you know me for any length of time, you know that walking on flat pavement is dangerous for me. So balancing on the back of the couch is a truly bad idea. I've started noticing that the bridge is disconnecting from the network more and more often over time. 
At one point, maybe, I don't know, six months ago, Steve and I fought with it for hours. And when we were done, not only was my motion sensor offline, the proximity sensor from Wise that we use on our mailbox was also offline. It was so messed up that Wise sent Steve a whole new set of sensors and a new bridge because we simply could not get it to work. In the past year, we've probably lost, I don't know, about six hours of our lives just trying to get the dumb motion sensor to work again. So last week, when the motion sensor from Wise went offline yet again, I poked it a few times with a paperclip, and then I walked into Steve's room and I pronounced that I was done and I was buying another Hue motion sensor and Hue bulbs. He immediately said, good. Well, a pack, a two-pack of plain white bulbs from Hue is $30, and the sensor is $40. So that's $70 bucks versus the $36 for the equivalent from Wise. That's a fair amount more. And uh, But you know what? To have it actually work was worth it for me. And once I got to the point, I decided to spring for the color LED smart bulbs from Hue instead so that Steve can randomly change the light bulbs behind me while I'm broadcasting. The color LED bulbs are $50 each, but you should hear Steve giggle when he changes the color behind my back. It just, it just really delights him, so it's worth every penny. Well, I got the new bulbs and the motion sensor, and since I already had the Hue bridge from my original Hue bulbs, it was a matter of maybe three minutes to connect them to all to my Wi-Fi network and to configure the motion sensor to turn my lights on and off when I walk in and out of my studio. In only two more minutes, Steve had changed them to red and blue, so that was really nice. Not only do I expect the Hue motion sensor to continue to work without losing valuable hours in my life, but there's also other advantages. The Hue sensor, as Denise told us four years ago, is very responsive. I didn't realize how long I was waiting for my lights to come on with the Wise motion sensor until I got the Hue sensor and bulbs in my studio. It's really fast. Hue is also HomeKit compatible, like I mentioned, while nothing from Wise is. So I was able to add my studio bulbs to my It's Showtime scene, which kicks on at 4.45 p.m. right before the live show. When it's showtime fires, my LifeX light string on my mantle behind me goes on, my side light goes on via its a Wemo plug, the Ecobee thermostat tells the heater not to go off, or not to turn on, I should say, and the iDevices switch in Steve's den turns off the landline. It's glorious to now have all this automated based on time of day and available via Hey S Lady when I want to enable it for chit-chat across the pond in the middle of the week. Now, it isn't a fair cost comparison since I went with the color bulbs, but if I had to choose between the $70 Hue lights and motion sensor versus the $36 Wise lights and motion sensor, I would definitely go with Hue again. But you know what? I didn't stop there in my betrayal of, of Wise. As you probably know, the wire cutter is a well-known source for finding the best of just about everything. They've, uh, they just, they test everything. They do, you know, they buy 26 different varieties of whatever they're, they're uh, reviewing and they'll tell you what the best one is. Now, I've made the mistake of intentionally getting on their deals mailing list, and this last week they had the two-pack of the Eufy 2K camera for only 60 bucks on Amazon. They had done a review and chosen it in November for the best indoor security camera, and that's what they, so they chose the Eufy Indoor Cam 2K for $40, with the Wise coming in second place. So it was 40 bucks for one, but now it's two for $60. So that brings the price down pretty close to the $20 of the Wise cams. I went off to read why they felt the Eufy was better than the Wise. The two primary things that caught my eye in the wire cutter's explanation of their choice were that the resolution on the Eufy video is 2K versus 1080p on the Wise cam, and the Eufy is HomeKit compatible. 
I got to tell you, I've been badgering Wise since the early days to work on HomeKit, and they always tell me they're fixing to make a plan to maybe start thinking about it. I don't think they're ever going to do it. The other factor was I had a $60 gift card burning a hole in my pocket on Amazon, so on a whim, I bought the two-pack of Eufy cams because eight cameras, including our ring security cameras, is not enough. The Eufy cams are a little square box that rotates around the tip of a small post coming up from a square base. With no trouble at all, other than when I made a typo on my Wi-Fi password, I got the Eufy indoor cam on my Wi-Fi network using their Eufy security app. Now, that's not to be confused with their Eufy Home app, which I downloaded first. Eufy Home is for the robot vacuum, smart bulbs, plugs and switches, and Eufy Genie. Eufy Security supports Face ID and two-factor authentication via text message. When I tried to create a login, I got a very confusing message. It said I already had an account, even though this is my first Eufy product. It turns out Anchor owns Eufy, so I was able to use that login, so I didn't have to create a new login after all. I invested my hard-earned gift certificate in the Eufy's because of their 2K video resolution. I have to say, it really is terrific. Steve set up the Eufy right next to a WiseCam in our family room, and we took screenshots at the exact same time of the interface of the Wise app and the Eufy app, so you can see the difference, and of course the photos in the show notes. The photos I put in the show notes were taken around 11 in the morning, and the Eufy looks much clearer, the color is better, and the WiseCam is blown out on the left by the morning sun coming in from a window. We also looked at the cameras in comparison in the evening, and the difference was even more dramatic. The WiseCam actually looks smeary in comparison, and it prompted Steve to try to clean the lens in case that was the problem. In complete darkness, we compared the two cameras' infrared modes, and I think I'd give a slight edge to the WiseCam, but the difference wasn't very dramatic. Now, WiseCams come with 14 days of online storage, or you can use a microSD card to store data locally. Eufy has a free 30-day trial, but after that, you have to choose between a basic or premier plan for cloud storage. The basic plan is $30 per camera or $100 per year for up to 10 cameras. That's actually pretty close to the cost of ring cloud storage for videos, but I was interested in not paying more money right away. That's when I discovered that Eufy supports storing your videos on your network-attached storage using the Real-Time Streaming Protocol, or RTSP. They have detailed instructions using Synology as the example NAS, which was great for me since I have a Synology now. At their direction, I installed Synology's surveillance station software, and with a bit of faffing about because they skipped one little step in the instructions, I now have my Eufy cam storing all of the videos and photos I take with it stored on my Synology. I like new toys that help justify the purchase of, of my Synology, because I knew there was a reason I needed one. The Eufy security software allows for a lot of customization of your camera. Motion detection, when enabled, gives you options to monitor the entire field of view, or you can define up to two activity zones. You can morph, morph these activity zones to any kind of shape using the six-point handles for each zone. Within the zones, or the entire field of view, you can select what type of object you want to detect. It can tell the difference between people, pets, or all other motion, or all three. You can set the sensitivity to five different levels from lowest to highest. Eufy cams also have sound detection, and you can choose to detect all sound or just that of a baby crying. Now, I don't have a baby here most of the time, but I could see using one of the cameras I didn't need to help monitor one or both of my granddaughters the next time they come over. Again, with sound detection on Eufy, you can set the sensitivity level. 
One of the most interesting features of Eufy security is that you can set it to detect a pet when they go into a specific zone and then have it play back a recording of your voice. They show an example of a bed as a zone and a dog thinking about jumping on the bed and the camera saying, stop. Well, I wanted to test this feature, so I set the Eufy to detect people and I set the zone to be Steve's chair. And then I recorded my voice saying, good boy, Steve. So basically every single time that he wiggled his toes, it would make the speaker go off and tell him he was a good boy. Now, don't give me a hard time. He started it by changing the color of my hue lights when I wasn't looking, remember? Well, anyway, you have control of the video quality based on your bandwidth, and there's some settings to enable the microphone and speaker on the camera. You do want the speaker on so you can talk to your pets or, you know, torture your husband. At least that's what I do with it. Now, I haven't gotten the full handle on the notification settings, and not because they don't have enough options. I just haven't figured out when, how, and where I want to be notified. At first, we had all the switches on, so if I crossed my legs sitting on the couch, we'd get alerts to our phones and watches. That was probably not what we were looking for. You can decide the interval in minutes between notifications of detection of people, pets, crying, or all sound or motion, and you can choose when you get a text notification or a thumbnail with the text notification. The real power of notifications is in the security section, where you have six options from which to choose. First, there are three modes, home, away, and disarmed. Disarmed has all device triggers disabled, so it won't record video no matter what goes on. Home and away have default settings that you can change. You can set these modes to record video, send push notifications, and even set off an alarm if the camera detects a person. Might be a bad idea to have the alarm go off if you're home, but that might be exactly what you want when you're away. But remember my opening premise. If I have to open the app, tap on security, and select home or away every time I leave or come home, that's not a smart home. Luckily, Eufy includes a geofencing option, a schedule-based option, or you can create your own customized option. Now, Steve and I really wanted to use the geofencing mode, but you know that never works when you've got multiple nerds, right? But Eufy does let multiple nerds play. I was able to add each of our phones to the geofencing rules, even though I had Steve sign in using my account, so they were, they were two separate devices. I was able to adjust the radius around our home for it to trigger and enable two different devices, and now it will switch to the home mode if even one device is at home. That's brilliant, and the instructions were clear and obvious. One thing I don't want to take for granted is that I can always use the Eufy Security app on my iPad in landscape mode. That doesn't seem like too much to ask, right? Along with many others in the WISE forums, I have begged them to make a landscape version for literally years, and they keep saying, oh, I don't know, we might do that someday. So irritating. Well, the final step was to put the Eufy into HomeKit, but I was stopped in my tracks. Eufy explains that according to the HomeKit guidelines, if I put the camera in HomeKit, I would lose a lot of the features that are so cool. Remember I bought the Eufy for the 2K video? HomeKit would force me down to 1080p. That was enough to stop me, but they went on to explain that I would lose the camera's ability to use on-device AI to identify people versus pets. Pet command functions would be disabled, and even activity zones would be disabled. But wait, there's more. Eufy cloud storage could no longer be used, and even storing my own darn videos on my own darn NAS would be disabled. About the only cool feature that wouldn't be lost would be geofencing to automatically set home and away on the camera. Now, if I just put the camera into HomeKit before learning about all its old cool features, I probably would have been happy. Unfortunately, I learned the cool stuff it can do first, so I'm actually choosing 2K video and cool features 
over my beloved HomeKit. Now, it's not common for me to change my allegiance to a product. I tend to be excessively loyal, so it feels very odd to stray from recommending Wise products. But given the choice between Wise Bulbs Motion Sensor versus Hue, I am Hue all the way for me now. I'm not sure I'll go with Eufy Cams over Wise Cams for other solutions, but I'm sure having a lot of fun with the Eufy. I want to give a double shout out to two awesome Nocilla Castaways. Linda Goucher has been a longtime supporter of the NoSilicast as a friend, a contributor, and as a member via Patreon. She recently increased her pledge to help the show. I don't mention it often, but once you become a patron, you have great flexibility. You can up your pledge like Linda, you can lower it when you need to, or you just want to. And of course, you can turn it off at any moment. You are in complete control. Thank you, Linda, for your support and going to podfeet.com slash Patreon to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast. The second person I want to thank is Eric, who used PayPal to show his support of the Podfeet podcast. I love that we have different ways to let you show your appreciation for the work we do here. Eric, you rock for going to podfeet.com slash PayPal to support the Podfeet podcast. Boy, that was a lot of alliteration. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts. What kind of new horrors do we have this week, Bart? Um, To be honest, with the way the world has been going, I was a bit distracted this week. Um, My heart wasn't quite as in it as usual. Something about insurrection sets me off. Yeah, it's funny that way, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, we do have news, so I suppose we should get stuck in and distract ourselves. Um, Good. We talked last time that Apple had just surprised everyone by releasing a new version of iOS 12, 12.5.0. And that was exactly two weeks ago, and now they have just released 12.5.1 to make it actually work. (laughs) So there was a bug fix. What was wrong with it? So the reason they released 12.5 was to give COVID exposure notifications to older iPhones, and it was apparently buggy on some older iPhones. So apparently it's been told to behave itself. Ah. Okay. So I don't have one of these older iPhones, so I will have to take Apple's word for it, but they say they have made it go. So hope they have. All right, good. Uh, Meanwhile, Yelp have updated their app to provide extra data fields so that when you're writing a review of your favorite eatery, you can now include in your review how they are about the whole COVID thing. Are they keeping to the guidelines? Oh, Oh, that's nice. So you can see whether everybody's wearing masks or are they six feet apart? Are they outside or inside? That's hmm. That's kind of interesting because that requires the reviewers to know day by day what are the requirements of your local area. But you're like, the whole point of crowdsourcing, I guess, is that if you're a New Yorker, you know what's normal for New York. I don't know what's right for New York, though. I know sure, normal. but it's still local knowledge. It's still more valuable. I mean, it's cloud sourced, crowd sourced, not cloud sourced. It is in the cloud too, but um, it's crowd sourced. So it's always imperfect data, but on average, the crowd tends to be right. I mean, that's why Yelp has any value at all, right? I mean, what's a good pizza? I've lost faith in the in the, crowd <laughs> the wisdom of crowds. Right, <laughs> Actually, wisdom of crowds is out the window now. One of the caveats on the wisdom of crowds is that they have to be independent. Because if, as soon as a herd mentality sets in, the wisdom of crowds collapses. And you can prove this in experiment. 
If you get a bunch of school kids, right? So this was done in England to estimate the weight of a cow. So there was a guy in the 1800s went to a market and asked random people to guess the weight of a cow. And all of them were wrong. But on average, they were within a few pounds. Okay. But if you repeat the experiment, uh, so on Planet Money, actually, they repeated the experiment with school kids. And as long as each kid was independent, they just, they didn't know what they never talked to each other. Yeah, they got it right. They were within a few pounds of the weight of the cow. The moment they saw each other, whatever the popular kid said, everyone else said. And the wisdom of the crowds evaporated. Yeah, yeah. I used to always try to answer a question of, that I, if I cared about the answer to a group poll in a meeting, mm-hmm. I would make sure I answered first <laughs> because the first trend. matters. Because yes. if the first person says it's stupid and the second person thought it wasn't stupid, or maybe the fifth person thought it wasn't stupid, they rarely would say it. But if you could get your opinion in first, my opinion might have been the stupid answer, but I made sure mine was in first before everybody else started answering. Yeah, because what it does is it biases, right? Everyone who has a strong opinion is not going to be changed by your opinion. But everyone who doesn't have a strong opinion is just going to sway in the breeze. And by getting in first, all the undecideds flip to your side of the the ledger. So back to the COVID guidelines, I I guess uh, since I haven't seen what the Yelp thing looks like, it could have little checkboxes for people are six feet apart, people are wearing masks, you know, the ventilation is good, you know, whatever. It could be checkboxes or something, right? It could. Uh, To be honest, I'm not not a Yelp user, so I don't really know. Yeah. We're both tempted to go look at the link and read now, but... Uh, oh, no, actually, <laughs> you're, you're, you're actually... You're, you're correct, Alison. There's a screenshot oh, okay. here of the UI. Social distancing enforced. Tick. Staff might oh, not okay. wear masks. Exclamation point. Or, sorry, yellow, orange sad, sad question mark. Yeah. Okay, so you get to, you get to check boxes. Yeah. Good. Actually, okay. there's interesting... According to most users, social distancing enforced. According to some users, staff might not wear masks. So it's actually oh. even more useful. You're getting a confidence as well as just the, the categories. That, okay. Well done. Well done, Yelp. That's actually very yeah, clever. that is good. I mm. need to uh, check and see if my doctor's office is on that because twice, not once, but twice, the uh, receptionist wasn't wearing a mask. The first time, not wearing it at all. She had it around under her neck and was talking to the woman next to her. This time, she would put it up until she started talking to you, and then she would pull it down. And, you know, I leaped back 12 feet and said, put your mask up. And she did. And then she started to talk and pulled it down again. And it was the same woman that had done it before, and I'd yelled at my doctor about it. But it's a doctor's office. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was cranky with my solicitor that I had to tell his secretary twice to put on a mask. Mm-hmm. But they're solicitors. They're not doctors. Right, right. Yep. Well, anyway, <laughs> moving on. I like this yeah. move by Yelp. Good job. I will now yeah. go look for my doctor's office. Yeah. So, as we know, the solar wind story will keep giving for many, many, many moons. So we have a quick mm-hmm. update. Uh, we now know that a bunch of sealed, or they were sealed, uh, not anymore, a bunch of sealed court records have gotten exposed as part of this uh, security whoopsie. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So that's people who had were, were part of the attack were able to get to U.S. court records and then expose them. Yeah, I did, to be honest, I didn't dig in too deep into the Krebs on Security article. Basically, the, the attack, there was, an, there was a solar court 
officers were caught up in the attack, which has resulted mm. in data that should not be le- known being known. Mm. Great. Okay. Uh, CISA have released a new document helping organizations figure out if the, their attack was spread into their Office 365 tenancy. So if you're an organization oh, okay. who is caught up in this, this is very useful to help you figure out how badly damaged you are. It's, okay. It's not good news, but it's Specifically about Office 365, though. Correct. So basically, if you know you're compromised on-premise, your obvious next question is, has it, has it escaped into our cloud? And oh. so, Oh, that's the question. Okay. Yeah, and so this is a list of telltale signs that your cloud is corrupted. So basically things to go look for in your Office 365 settings. And if you find them, then you know that they escaped from your your on-premise location into your cloud infrastructure too. And you obviously then need to go and change all of your keys and all of your passwords. And oh boy. Yeah. Anyway, so it's, it's very yeah. helpful for people to be able to figure out, to, they get help figuring out how badly they're messed up. And finally, solar winds have released details of how their build process was compromised. Oh. And the short version is it was an extremely sophisticated attack. Clearly, this was very heavily resourced. And SolarWinds' conclusion is this could happen to anyone and may well have happened to other people who don't know about it yet. And I'll Mm. be darned if I can disagree with them. Hmm. Now, the fact that they have detailed the how is good because it's raised awareness and it's also, you know, there's things that were secret that are not secret anymore. But nonetheless, if someone with this amount of resources and this amount of expertise is attacking some random company somewhere, the the random company is in trouble. So, yeah, yeah it, that's it's really, interesting. That's good they, they're pushing that out. Letting it is actually know. good they're sharing because yeah. the, the temptation would be to keep your mouth shut, but <laughs> right, right. they're sharing, which is good. Uh, also, some good news. Um, back in November, link in show notes, it was 22nd of November was the show. Um, we talked about a change in macOS Big Sur where Apple had added a whole bunch of their own apps to a firewall whitelist. And Patrick Wardle had discovered a way to trick apps on the whitelist into proxying network traffic for other apps, effectively allowing anyone to bypass the firewall. So a malicious app could piggyback off of a whitelisted app and get around the firewall that way. Uh, Only third-party firewalls, but nonetheless, that's not good, right? Little snitch just lost visibility into that stuff. And we had said at the time that this looked like some sort of intermediate step where Apple was going to work to harden this over time. Well, time has been and gone, and we now know that the beta version of uh, Big Sur, what are we, 14.2, or whatever the next version of Big Sur is, um, 11, must be 11.2, sorry, they went to 11. (laughs) Um, The next version of Big Sur has a massively reduced whitelist. So Apple have been working to get their apps to work through the firewalls. So it looks like they had the whitelist to buy themselves some time to re-architect their apps to work through the new APIs. So this is specifically about Apple's apps? Correct, because they were the only ones bypassing firewalls. Right, okay. So, but it's not, it's down to the minimum, but it's not all of their apps? 
well, some stuff, of the apps can stuff still like bypass. The operating system still gets to go by, right? You can't, mm-hmm. little snitch can't stop the Mac from looking for new virus definitions. Right. And that's not a bug, that's a feature. Okay. Because, right. yeah. Do you turn on the firewall, Bart? Uh, I don't know. Is it on by default? No, I don't think so. Yeah, no. Um, I rely on my router rather than... Well, that's kind of what I was thinking. Who's out there not using a router? If I took my laptop with me to places, I would have my firewall on. But places is not a place my iMac goes because <laughs> it's a bit heavy. Right. Um, <laughs> but my laptops, I would have always proactively enabled the firewall on while I still went to places. Huh. I've never uh, never had it on. Well, it, it, you see it less now, but it was always fun to open up iPhoto when you were at a conference and see everyone who didn't have their firewall on because you could look at all their photos. Yeah. Or their shared iTunes libraries. I remember that. Yeah, that was good fun. Um, I, I, I was influenced by something Leo said a long time ago on some show somewhere that the first thing malware does when it gets into your system is it goes and turns off any software firewalls. And this is a software firewall, no? Uh, this is for third-party software firewalls, but that would mean that the oh, virus... Oh, I thought we were talking you... about the OS's firewall is what we've been talking about. No, 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 no. So oh. it was only third-party firewalls that could be bypassed. The OS's firewall can't be bypassed. It's only... So if you install a third-party app like Little Snitch, then Apple's own apps were not being throttled by Little Switch. I got you. Little Snitch, okay. and now they are. Okay, but Apple's apps are stopped by its own firewall? Yes, the Apple system level firewall is built into the kernel. It's actually uh, it's actually part of uh, its FreeBSD heritage. Oh, wow. So I should have that on since I use the laptop and, and when I can go places. Yeah, I, I would say yes, definitely tick that on button because it's huh. it's set up as a one-way valve so you can do everything you want. It's just people can't reach into your Mac, which is kind of what you want. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, action alerts. Last Tuesday was Patch Tuesday. Microsoft issued a raft of updates. One of them is a patch to a zero day being actively exploited in the wild against Microsoft Windows Defender. Oh, jeez. That's a patchy, patchy, patch, patch, no sort of bug. Yeah, that's the worst thing. Yes. So definitely oh, patch your Windows infrastructure. Your Windows laptops were home users here. Um, Zysol have been found to have a hard-coded admin password in a bunch of their routers. So if you have a Zysol router, patchy, patchy, patch, patch to get that hard-coded admin password out of your system. Jeez. And Boy. Ubiquity had a bit of a problem on their cloud. So if you, are a, if you have a Ubiquity router, you need to change your password and you should probably enable 2FA while you're at it. So... Yeah. This is one of the downsides of this modern trend of having cloud-based far, having cloud-managed firewalls. You know, if you're a small, if you're a corporation with lots of sites, there are great advantages to cloud management. I do not understand why a home user would particularly feel the need to have their one router managed from the cloud. But anyway, yeah. that is the trend these days. It's it's the buzzword feature, right? Over to worthy warnings. Uh, at the end of 2020, I had meant to mention this last time and I, it slipped my mind, so I'm, I'm, I'm late to this party. But one of the nice things that died at the end of 2020 that's actually gone, unlike our pandemic friend, is Flash. Flash has actually left the stage. 
It is now you know, end normally of you life. pour one out when you feel sadness. I'm having trouble pouring anyone out on that. No, what's that? I'll toast to it rather than pouring one out, which yeah, still involves alcohol. Good it's just, yeah, <laughs> still involves alcohol, just a different sentiment. Um, if you actually installed standalone Flash, you now have to uninstall it because Adobe are not patching it anymore. And the thing oh. I am sure... I am sure the bad guys will find bugs in the latest version of Flash that exists. Now, if you had it as part of your browser so that you never went and got an installer and double-clicked the installer, then the browsers have simply expunged it from themselves. But if you were, if you had standalone Flash, you need to remove it. So there are links in the show notes to an article over at the Mac Security blog with instructions for how to get Flash off your system if it is indeed on your system. And I would... I would guess a lot fewer people have Flash installed than you might think. Yeah, I I don't think it's probably few. <laughs> I think by attrition. It's been a long time since you've needed to install it. So anyone who's bought a new machine in the last couple of years is probably uh, okay. Dave Hamilton was just saying that he has kept a separate browser with Flash enabled just because he still runs into it today. Right, There's but... Like a site in the last couple of weeks that he went to that he needed it. Right, but that's Flash enabled. That's Flash hand. But that doesn't mean standalone Flash. Google, oh, true, true. Because Edge and Chrome embed Flash in themselves, but they manage the Flash for you, and so they've. You're taken- also assuming that when people get new machines, they don't just use that little migration assistant for twelve straight years in a row. That is a that is a very fair point. <laughs> that is a very we fair know point. They do. Yes. So the Windows users who don't have that luxury are more secure <laughs> by accident. <laughs> yep. Uh, a company which processes payments for Amazon and a apparently very popular site called Swiggy. I, I'm completely out of touch with these things, but apparently it's a popular site. Uh, they suffered a wee bit of a data leak and lost 100 million. Uh, or sorry, they lost data on 100 million debit and credit card holders. Now the good news is they didn't lose the financial information. They only lost the masked credit cards. So you know the way you'll often see them with your card ending in bloody bloody blah. And email addresses and physical addresses and basically enough to do a really, really targeted fish. Including your masked credit card. So you should always be suspicious, but if you're an Amazon user, so hello everyone on planet Earth. Um <laughs> be extra suspicious of anything coming into your email just because it knows the last four digits of your credit card, don't assume it's legitimate because that information has just been leaked by these clowns. So that is... I've not heard of Swiggy either. Yeah. Anyway, Uh, uh, you then shared a story with me that is definitely worth uh, telling everyone about. Uh, Amazon's Ring neighbor's doodad has had a bit of a whoopsie and uh, exposed users' precise location and home addresses, which does not sound good at all. Yeah, so in the Amazon or in the Ring app, uh, you can sit there and look at your own little cameras and record and view old videos and you're you're just fine. But if you share a video to there's a tab called Neighbors and that's where people post pictures of, you know, a, a bad guy stealing a package off of a, a doorstep and say, hey, can anybody recognize these guy, mm. this guy? If you if you did that, then your precise location, which is the same as home address, would be. Um, exposed. Okay. Which is awesome. Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) 
Hopefully, hopefully people haven't been sharing that too much. I always find that neighbor. Oh feature no, a bit that's freaky. a big deal. Is it a big I mean, deal? It's like it's like oh look, I caught a raccoon doing something funny. You know, look at this moth beating its wings against my camera. It was hilarious. Uh, that's what that's. There's a lot of that. Okay. So, oh. so it's not even useful stuff. Like help me catch this. Well, no, no, it's that too. But I'm saying if even if you don't have that, if you catch something cool, you know, you catch a lightning strike, you want to show okay. it to people. No, no that's a right fair there. point. You're, you're absolutely yeah. right. If, if my camera had caught a lightning strike or a dog catching a frisbee or something fun, I'd probably share it too. You're dead right. Of course I would. Yeah, right. Jill posted in our uh, Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack in the uh, uh, Nocella Castaway show off channel. She posted a video that her uh, video doorbell caught of a uh, meteor, a meteorite. Ooh. Okay, yeah, yeah. Was like you know I'd post ago. that. Of course I would. You would do that, right? <laughs> yeah, of course I would. Yeah, never mind. Never mind. Ignore me. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I don't know how deep we want to go into this. So I'm just going to read them all out, and you can tell me what we want to talk about or not. Um. Okay. Actually, no. Sorry, we have the WhatsApp story first before we get to the scary one. Um. So WhatsApp have updated their terms of service. It made people really rather cranky, to put it mildly. Uh, the new terms of service, which you are forced to accept when you launch WhatsApp, uh, says they can share data with Facebook. So yeah, this I'm firewall between those two apps, which I never believed in, has evaporated. So to some extent, this is now just the reality I sort of assumed was always here. <laughs> but that doesn't make it any better. You know, I'm shoot, I, w- I should have paid more attention. There was uh, they, they sort of backpedaled on the explanation of exactly what they were sharing. Uh, yeah, they haven't not changed as, as bad as you thought. Yeah, they haven't changed what they're doing. They've just changed how they're talking about it, and they're talking about it in a very interesting way. They're telling you what they're not doing instead of telling you what they are doing, and so that leaves me to wonder what is it that I haven't thought of that I probably should have thought of and should be scared of that they are doing. But they, they did are say Friday that they're postponing the update to the privacy policy that would have deleted your account. I think if you didn't agree to it, ah, but shoot. that's just a delay. I should have rejected until the fifteenth. I ended um, up clicking agree because I needed to talk to my family because they're all on WhatsApp. Let's see. Earlier this week, WhatsApp published an FAQ clarifying the terms of its updated privacy policy. Responded to concerns it shares personal inf- information with parent company Facebook. Firm noted the update doesn't affect the privacy of messages with friends and family and instead relates to messaging businesses through the platform. It's specifically about businesses. That's right. So if you've got messages back and forth with your family, they're not changing what that sending that to Facebook. It's your messages with businesses that's going to be shared. And apparently a whole bunch of IP address and other information. <laughs> and how often <laughs> oh, you use the app. Gosh. Yeah, it's, gosh, again, by listing the negatives, they're, they're leaving themselves an awful, awful lot of room to be up to all sorts of stuff. Because I don't yeah, know I don't what know it is, I don't have know. In the show notes, but uh, there's been a massive uh, uptick in the number of people downloading Telegram and uh, what and um, Signal. Signal. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah. So join me over on Telegram, everyone. Find me at Podfeet. You can chat with me there. There you go. <laughs> okay, so now, oh yeah, I'm sorry. In a related story, Facebook have updated their your information section, so you can find out. They've made it easier to know what Facebook knows about you, which is kind of nice, to be honest. Um, By the way, Bart suggested, uh, I don't know if it's just two weeks ago or a little farther back uh, that we, or further back that we uh, 
you recommended the the uh, video, the movie, the social the social dilemma. What was it? So the social dilemma. Do not watch this video that Bart recommended. I rocked on the chair in a fetal position for about three days after watching this. Don't do not watch it. I, just don't do it. It, it was. I, it I does end on a positive note. Like there is a call to positive action at the end. It's not you're doomed. You're doomed. You're doomed. Oh, it was like the last minute and a half was where they go. But maybe that's possible. We could potentially avoid what's happening to us, and we're all signing up for. I, I really like the fact that. It was a call to action. I thought that was quite positive. Yeah, anyway. well, I, yeah. I mean, knowledge is power. I'm, I'm being facetious, of course. But it yeah, was, it's not uh, happy, happy, joy, joy. It's definitely not. Oh, I'm feeling a bit down. I'll watch some telly to cheer me up. That's not what you're watching. <laughs> this is not Ted Lasso. <laughs> no, yes, <laughs> that's it. It's an inverse Ted Lasso to some extent. Yeah, it's good for you. All right. So it's like the world. Hey, let's talk about violent insurrections instead, Bart, and raise our mood. Yeah. So Facebook were the first to respond by changing their moderation policies. Uh, basically, Wait, you weren't allowed... Wait, set the stage of what we're talking about. Okay, so... In case somebody doesn't... A bunch... For those of you not on planet Earth, on January 6th, a whole bunch of QAnon-believing supporters of President Trump marched on the capital of the United States of America and trashed the place. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook were the first to leap to action and change their moderation rules to say if you glorify, call for, or praise the violence, that will be moderated. Uh, President Trump was in short order banned from everything I can think of. Facebook, again, were the first to be definitive about it. Uh, Spotify followed, TikTok followed. Uh, Shopify. Sorry. Yes, I keep doing that. <laughs> and Shopify is more important because Shopify means money. Mm-hmm. Um, TikTok, Twitch, Snapchat. And Twitter initially gave him a 12-hour timeout and then realised that was probably not sufficient and pulled the ban button. Uh, and he did actually try to tweet from the POTUS account as if no one would notice that was him. That, that, I thought that was fantastic. And also from the Trump for President account as if no one would realise that was him either. But they were promptly banned as well. Uh, and then uh, Another in- one was Stripe, the uh, credit card... Uh, um- processing company uh said they're no longer gonna um provide fund or allow them to process uh the credit cards on the uh trump website that's also a big deal actually because money money matters yeah uh in related news then um oh i seem to have stuck that story in the wrong place that should okay that related story should have gone to the end of the parlor bit we're about to get to can you move that bullet point down to the parlor bit I will mentally skip over it now and say that Twitter, while they were at the banning thing, when they finally got round to banning people, they decided that just leaving it at the president was insufficient because the whole QAnon thing, well, that's kind of at the root of this. So they then continued on and banned Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell and Ron Watkins as well for spreading the QAnon, as BuzzFeed calls it, as BuzzFeed calls it, the QAnon delusions. Okay. Then, in very much related news, Parler ended up on the receiving end of a lot of ire because as Apple put it, due to inaccurate, sorry, inadequate measures to address dangerous content, they would they were given 24 hours to shape up or get banned from the store. Google didn't bother with the 24 hours and just removed them. Amazon then went, you know something, you're sitting on our AWS hosting, you're in breach of our terms of service, we've tried to reach out to you many times before, we're suspending your account. And then now there's a lawsuit. Uh Tim Cook has, however, made it clear that should Parler get their moderation 
in order, they can come back, assuming they have a server to host on. Um, and then, in very much related news, we now know that uh, Parler wasn't particularly well implemented. Uh, a very common type of attack is the kind of thing that no one with more than like an undergraduate understanding of computer science should ever get wrong, is you shouldn't have sequential IDs on stuff that's supposed to be private. Because if you have sequential IDs, you go to the browser address bar, you take the number at the end of the URL and you add one, and you get to the next valid thing. Yeah, that's a classic, right? That's a classic. I even know that one. So Parler, rather than actually implementing a social network apparently hacked WordPress to make their own site. They took WordPress as their starting point and bashed it into a social network. Oh, oh, that okay, that's what I've been looking for. I heard there was something wrong about about WordPress. It's so they not, hacked no. WordPress to or made it made of their own version of WordPress? Yes. So in WordPress is a blogging platform. The fact that the WordPress IDs are sequential is not relevant. The fact that you know what my next blog post is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that the IDs are sequential on the blog. But they're not supposed okay. to be on a social network or a cloud file share or whatever. So by taking WordPress and butchering it into a poor social network, they basically took a tool designed for making only public content and tried to use it to make partially public, partially private content without adding any security. Oh, okay. Right? Therefore, it was possible for a security researcher, and I'm not sure whether this researcher is grey hat or white hat, but it doesn't really matter, not malicious, um, simply went and scraped it, starting at ID 1, download it, go to ID 2, download it, go to ID 3, download it. Hmm. And it turns out that when you delete a post on Parler, you're just setting a flag. Just like when you delete a page in WordPress, you can, it just basically becomes invisible. So, kind of turns out that uh, a whole bunch of deleted posts aren't deleted. And 5.6 terabytes worth of media, including geotags, because they, the code also didn't strip out the geolocation data from uploaded media. So, if your phone embeds geolocation data into your videos that you share of you, you know, bashing police over the head with American flags or whatever... All that location data is still in the files. So they also then had a program where you could become a verified citizen where you would upload government ID. So we have geotagged videos of people misbehaving who on a site where they have proven their identity with scans or photos of government-issued ID. Oops. (laughs) That's maybe a little bit easy to catch them then. Yeah, so I would imagine if I were, say, sitting in the FBI, I I think I would be going, hello there, we would like a copy of your 5.6 terabyte database, please. Yeah, and she very specifically said, come and get it. Yeah, and I I would imagine behind the scenes, that's exactly what's happened. It doesn't strike me as being particularly unlikely that they would. Why wouldn't you? It's like, oh, cool. Yeah. Now, I, and to some extent, Bart, try to keep politics out of the show and and I've been showing a little bit of what my opinion on this is right here but let me let me back up a little bit the um the most 
what well, he's he's been called pathologically unopinionated uh Tom Merritt uh who never takes a side in any anything like this um he did a a section on his editor's desk on his Patreon feed that he put out for free and he explains Amazon's decision to stop hosting Parler and talked about what he thinks about it and and it's a it's a really good episode i put a i put a link to it in the show notes again it's free but it's on Patreon he uh what he what he tried to do was walk through the process that Amazon went through to make the decision to remove their data uh yeah. from Parler and and he does it in a way that takes politics out of it and and he he leans into trying to explain how it's not a political decision and it's it's interesting cuz he says you know you might be able to argue apple and google are monopolies and them delisting the applications you can go down that road that's not the road i'm going to argue let me just talk about hosting the data and why amazon did it and what it's about and it's it's a dispassionate uh unpolitical discussion or uh, dissertation i would say he makes arguments based in fact and reason yeah yeah and it's and not not about politics not it's about not opinion. opinion it's not hearsay it is facts and take those facts and apply logic and reason in a cold yeah, dispassionate could you way come to yeah yeah, yeah. which is i mean I, I would still say it's pathologically dispassionate even when he's <laughs> even when he apologizes up front that oh i might get political no he doesn't it's still <laughs> ruthlessly logical it's wonderful it, it's it's as it should be and i would like to think that nothing i have said goes beyond the the simple facts i'm looking at it from the outside right i'm, I'm just a foreigner looking in and what i saw was a violent insurrection in a, the capital of a country so mm-hmm. you know I, I have said no more and i don't plan to it's just you know <laughs> I don't like the truth, but anyway. Right. It is what it is. Now that we've that done, we can move on. Um, I'm just looking. I sure hope there's a palate cleanser. There is. Oh, thank goodness there is. <laughs> it's kind of related, but it's still good. Um, Intel has released something called RealSense ID, which is basically Intel's implementation of technology that is extremely similar to Face ID with the whole secure enclave kind of idea. So basically this allows Mm. people who are not Apple to make devices that have similar architected hardware-based security around facial ID. What does Windows Hello use? They, I think, use TPM, Trusted Platform Module, in, in, in devices that, in motherboards that support it. So again, it's a similar technology. Okay. TPM has issues, but it's it's still, yeah, there are issues with TPM, but it, it, it's pretty good. That's why Windows Hello is only available on some devices. Because, oh, right, because it has the hardware modules to support it. Yes, exactly. Not, okay. Only, the, only the, the higher end machines have TPM because it's, it's considered an enterprise feature because it's normally used oh. to store the encryption keys for full disk encryption. Oh, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, dum, dum, dum. More facial recognition news. A, the Japanese firm NEC has updated their facial re- recognition technology so that it works even when you're wearing a mask. I've no idea why they spent all of their time doing that. Can't, can't imagine. Wait a minute, but most facial recognition is pretty flawed and doesn't recognize when you can see a whole face, right? Well, they're, they're claiming 90-something percent uh, accuracy with masked people. Hmm. 
that's their marketing material. I'm sure they have something to back it up. But I guess I've just seen too many cases of where uh, you know they've they've demonstrated that Supreme Court justices or faces show up as you know convicted criminals and things like that. As long as their color, skin is of a specific color, it seems to uh, veer that direction. There are certainly biases built in to a lot of AI systems because if you train them on bad data, they are bad AI. Garbage in, garbage out. Uh, We talked some time ago about Mozilla launching a VPN service, and at the time they started off with a software launch, so it was a Windows thing. Well, it is now a macOS and a Linux thing as well. So if you. Is that an open source VPN then? Um. It probably is open source, actually, if the Mozilla Foundation are doing it. I think the bigger the bigger advantage to having Mozilla as a VPN ah. provider is that Mozilla themselves are a charitable foundation, so the profit motive isn't there to steal your data. Uh, five bucks a month. Yeah, which is reasonable. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, you know, typo you, on the Mac Observer article. It says after rolling out on platforms like Windows, Android, and iOS, the Mozilla VPN arrives on macOS and Linus. No, oh, so it's running on <laughs> poor Linus. <laughs> Well, it's running on Linus Torvald. You have to go get him in order to have it. Dear Linus, one 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 zero one, and then he goes and shouts into a phone one zero one one. He does the encryption in his head. He's very clever. Right. Uh, the UK Competition and Markets Authority has opened an investigation into Google, which I initially thought was going to be a good news story, and then I read the story. No, they're investigating Google. Because Google are trying to kill third-party tracking cookies in Chrome, and the UK Competition and Markets Authority are afraid that might stop newspapers spying on people. This is up there with the French court case trying to stop Apple implementing tracking transparency because it might hinder uh, media companies. So that made me very cranky to, to see the UK being as dumb as the French in this one specific regard. Hmm. Uh, Alison, you shared the next story because it is a good news story. Uh, yeah, so this was the uh, California uh, California company settled an FTC allegation that it deceived its customers about use of facial recognition in photo storage. So this this story is good because uh, it, the the event happened quite a long time ago, but a company called Ever Album. Had uh, was using people's uploaded photos to create their own facial recognition technology and then sell that technology, and they didn't tell the users. So this came up a long time ago. Where was it? February of 2017. But they have now settled. And uh, yeah, what was the penalty? There, I'm, I, I know there was a bunch of money, but I think they have to stop using. They they're not allowed to use the uh, the technology that they developed. Yeah. So their ill-gotten gains have been. They have been deprived of their ill-gotten gains, which is, to me, actual justice. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of a nice story, and we wouldn't have missed, you know, it was four years ago that it actually happened, but uh, uh, that's, a, that's a good on you, FTC, for, uh, for getting to it. Yes. And finally, a, what I think is a good news story out of the U.S. State Department. Uh, Mike Pompeo has created a Bureau of Cyber... S- Sorry, let me... Oh, this is so hard to say. Bureau of Cyber... I can't read. A Bureau of Cyberspace Security and Emerging Technologies, or CSET, which I can't say, within the State Department with the aim of informing US policy when it comes to cybersecurity. So US foreign policy, sorry, when it comes to cybersecurity. 
So in the 21st century, having the US State Department, having having a bureau built around the skills to manage this whole cybersecurity thing is nothing but positive. So I'm pretty sure our 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 CISA head was fired. No, that's CISA, not CSET. Right, I know, but I'm saying if you don't have a a a, a CISA head and yet you've got a cybersecurity and emerging technologies over in in the State Department. I don't know. Well, they do very, very different mess. things, right? This is about informing foreign policy rather than um, protecting. So one of them is in the oh, Defense okay. Department. One of them is. So this is about keeping American diplomats informed on cybersecurity issues as they're doing their diplomacy around the world. And that's kind of important that when you're working with China, that you are at least aware of the actual realities of the corporate espionage and whatnot that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So no, th- there is a backstory here where there actually was a similar office under the previous president, and it got killed by someone. But anyway, it doesn't matter. What matters is it is up and running again, and I really think it's important that diplomats be properly informed about this. So yeah, I, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Top tips. One. This is a story that I shared with colleagues at our, at, at work as well because this is just so relevant now. Homeschooling, how to stay secure from naked security. It's just, it's just darn useful, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Good. Uh, in terms of excellent explainers, then, um, there is a whole new scam, well, relatively new, new to me and new to many people, scam on Amazon called brushing. And there's a lovely description of it uh, from NBC Washington. So the way this manifests is that people start to get random packages from Amazon that they haven't ordered containing random cheap things. Hmm. And when they inquire, Amazon just tell them to keep it. doesn't matter. So they're not the victims. They're just the useful people. What's going on is that sellers are building themselves a false positive score by creating a second Amazon account with the same address as the human being who receives the packages. So the seller has their Amazon account where they're selling things, and then Mm -hmm. fake Amazon accounts with real addresses to which they post genuine things, so that from Amazon's point of view, they have real customers who can then write verified reviews. But how can they be the customer? They just ship it to the address they're not at, and that makes them the customer. That's why the packages arrive. No, but I mean, so you're you're the bad guy. You've yes. got a storefront. You ship a package to me. No, but I, no, I ship it to an account I have created that uses your address. Oh, okay, because you've created the account. So they don't care where it goes. It could go to the dump. Exactly. It just has to go somewhere. So that Amazon shows it as like a verified some, sale. Some belly button lint in the box. Ship it. Yes. Oh, and then they get to write a positive review of the seller. But they are the seller. And Amazon so waits that... review is worth more than the cost of the shipping. Right, because they're shipping garbage. No, I know, but shipping costs. Right. The, the, like, you can't get out for under five bucks. So oh, absolutely. That review is worth at least five dollars. Right, but a reputation good enough to then defraud a thousand people. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got to do it a lot of times. Right. So you build your reputation and then... You go big. Then you do a, you have this glorious reputation and you start selling $1,000 items. 
and you get away with it for a couple of hundred transactions. Yeah, yeah. Why do they call it brushing, do you know? I have no idea. That, 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 That I don't get. But yeah, so this is a whole new scam. And so the victim is actually everyone because it means that the ratings on Amazon can't be believed. But the victims are not the people who received the dummy packages. The victims are all of us. And I don't know how Amazon, because the whole point of these verified reviews is that you're supposed to be able to believe them. And hey, presto, they've now found a way around that. Yeah. Yeah. People will always find a way to be awful. You know, speaking of being awful, I want to follow up uh, on something you told us. <laughs> Sorry, about, that's a bizarre uh, segue. I just have to note that that's such a wonderful segue. <laughs> speaking of being awful. <laughs> Uh, last time we talked, you told us about a scam going on specifically with, um, I forget if it was Facebook ads or Instagram ads, but they're the same company anyway, Yeah, uh, where you get shipped something that is a bizarrely horrible facsimile of the photo you saw uh, in the ad. And the, the thing you the thing you thought you were buying does actually exist, but it's somebody it, there's there's a reputable company selling yes. product X, but company Y takes that photo and then ships you garbage. Yes, and then in order to get your money back, you have to ship it to China, and so nobody ever does. And I didn't say anything at the time because I didn't want to embarrass her. But the, uh, there is a true story to this. Uh, a, a an eyewitness to this is my daughter Lindsay. Cool. She bought a chair, a camping chair, for her husband on uh, in one of these ads. And what she got was like this absolute piece of garbage. I mean, it was it was technically a chair, and you could squint and think it was could be used for camping, but it was nothing like what she she tried to get. And in your uh, explanation, you said that um, that uh, PayPal was doing nothing. Well, she fought this. She ended up shipping it back, and and because of some weird credit thing she only had to pay half of what it should have cost to ship it back but it was still like 35 bucks and then they they wouldn't answer her they wouldn't talk to her they said they never got it they the number you know it stopped ringing and the whole thing but she fought it with uh uh with paypal and they did cover it oh good she did get her money back if you're persistent enough so basically they're delaying so much that most people give up oh it took five months yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah so I think this is Father's off. Day present, and she just got the money back. Wow. But hey, but, you know, it's worth yeah. it. So yeah, this actually so might go, be... Go to the actual company, to the real company first. Yes, but this is kind of related, right? So how do sellers get enough reputation to be able to show up in search results and stuff at a high enough level? Well, one way to get high enough reputation is to do these kind of brushing scams. Yeah, yeah. So well, this was an ad on Facebook or or That's true, yeah. So it's paid, so this case was, was Facebook, which you, you yeah. can get very easily. You just hand over your money and they go, Oh, thank you very much. Everything's yeah. horrible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh we're getting towards the palate cleansing. So the first one, I, I was in two minds whether to call it an interesting insight or a palate cleanser, because it's kind of both. So there is a podcast I adore called Darknet Diaries. I've definitely proselytized it here before because I love it. Uh, But they had an entire episode dedicated to something we have definitely talked about loads of times on this show, Pwn to Own, the competition. So this is an episode all about the history of Pwn to Own and interviews with the people who have won it. 
So you actually get an insight into what it is to be a pwn-to-own competitor, what it is you do, what the point of pwn-to-own is, how you win, what it means. It's it's a fascinating insight into those words we hear so often. And at pwn-to-own, there was a Firefox bug found, and at pwn-to-own this happened, and at pwn-to-own that happened. Well, if you want the human stories behind what pwn-to-own means to the people in it, then Darknet Diaries episode 82, Master of Pwn, you will thoroughly enjoy it. And in fact, if you're listening to this podcast, you will thoroughly enjoy this episode of Darknet Diaries. I'm downloading it now. I had to unsubscribe. I was getting too depressed by Darknet Diaries. <laughs> but I'll download that one. No, too, because that's an entirely happy story, right? It's hacking for good. Because a condition okay. of pwn to own is that you have to responsibly disclose the vulnerabilities. Oh, okay. Okay, So cool. you, you, you get to, yeah. I mean, the, the whole, the reason it's called pwn to own is because you, you get to keep what you hack. And uh, Tesla Model 3s were some of the things you could hack. And yes, if yeah. you successfully hacked the Tesla Model 3, you got a Tesla Model 3. But the condition <laughs> of entry is that if you that everything you disclose has to be... Everything you use in your entry is disclosed to the company responsibly. Okay, okay. So it's actually a very positive... It's a way of making grey hat hackers go to the light side by giving them a shiny... Initially, it was yeah. a MacBook Pro. Uh, right, but, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, now it's a Tesla. So, you know, quite the difference. MacBook Pro, Tesla Model 3. <laughs> anyway, so I thought it was fascinating. And it's nice to hear the people behind those names we hear about. And then for a palate cleanser, I just I love XKCD. This is no secret. XKCD is sort of my thing. Uh, but the XKCD folks, they have in their back catalogue... Uh, an installment that I have always loved because it's been my opinion for years. I, I, I've had I've had a policy on my blog that I moderate as much as I want, and every time someone has the audacity to tell me that I'm impinging on their free speech, I let loose on them. And one of the things I let loose on them is this XKCD, which apparently has been quite popular online recently. But it's basically yeah, I just saw it recently about free speech. And I don't. Do you want to read it out, or what? Sure. Do, or do I'll you want to leave it, it to people? <clears throat> Yeah, it's just written. It's the little the little stick figure there. <clears throat> it says, public service announcement. The right to free speech means the government can't arrest you for what you say. It doesn't mean that anyone else has to listen to your BS or host you while you share it. The First Amendment doesn't shield you from criticism or consequences. If you yelled at, boycotted, have your show canceled, or get banned from an internet community, your free speech rights are not being violated. It's just that people listening to you think you're an a-hole, and they're showing you the door. <laughs> and uh, the hover text then I, I guess we'll switch to my voice for the hover text I can't remember where I heard this but someone once said that defending a position by citing free speech is sort of the ultimate concession you're saying that the most compelling thing you can say for your position is that it's not literally illegal <laughs> You know, I, one of the things I've enjoyed about the last few years is how much I have learned about uh, my own government and other people's governments. I didn't realize that the uh, the right to free speech is unique to the United States. Yes. That there isn't a Second Amendment equivalent in a lot of countries. Yes, which has very real side effects for libel law in places like Ireland and the UK. Because in America, your right to free speech is seen as, well, it's constitutional. Your right to a good name is important, but it's less important than the First Amendment. Right, right. In Ireland, your right to a good name is on an equal footing with your right of expression, and neither of them are actually explicit. 
So you don't actually have a right to free speech. The government Correct. could arrest you for what you say. Cor- they could pass laws. To they make could pass laws, right. Which right. they have done in our blasphemy law, which we passed only a few years ago. Huh. Which you guys couldn't do because you can't have a blasphemy law under your Bill of Rights. Yeah. Because you have freedom of expression and freedom of religion. So you get a a twofer. You get a twofer there. But it absolutely doesn't mean that anybody other than the government, you know, has to, or it doesn't mean that anybody has to listen to you or host your content. Correct. So if you want to post a comment on my website that I disagree with, you have no rights. It's my website, my freedom of speech. I get to say what I want. If you want to talk garbage I disagree with, run your own website. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go ahead. Exactly. So anyway, I just, uh, I love how well uh, Randall Monroe can express these complex thoughts, because that takes me like a giant paragraph of legalistic waffling and talk of amendments, and he just nailed it in a couple of stick figures. I do also like uh, Rob Dunwood on the uh, SMR podcast often says, you have the right to free speech, but it does not mean that you are free of repercussions from such speech. Yes. <laughs> or criticism. Some people are very delicate about being criticized. My free speech is in peace. You said mean things about me. Yeah. And you said mean things about all Mexicans. <laughs> so, Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's a, that's a great... Uh, keep this link handy, people, and just send it to people when you need to. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, with that said, we have managed to find the cheery end to this week. So. <gasps> All right, Bart. Well, we are actually... It looks like we're going to talk in three weeks. We're going to give does. Bart a, uh, a little time off to move into his new house. Fingers crossed, touch wood. I hope there's a floor. I hope there's a floor. I hope there's a floor. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to be fair, there there technically is a floor. There's not flooring. <laughs> fair point. And there is, because I'm me, there is internet in the new house. Nothing to walk on apart from bare concrete, but there is internet. So technically you can survive. Yeah, apart from the fact that my asthma and cement dust don't agree with each other very well. At all. <laughs> I made the mistake of bringing over uh, a mug and a hot water kettle. And yeah. I got to use them once, and now everything tastes of cement. Oh, <laughs> so anyway, yes. The important thing is, it's three weeks until you hear me say it again. So pay extra careful attention now. Remember, folks, to stay safe. Remember that you stay patched, so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You want to be cool like Linda and be a patron of the Podfeed podcast? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to be cool like Eric and use PayPal? Podfeed.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Hey, Facebook? That's fine. We've got a great Slack community at podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Kelly Guimont, Rob Dunwood, and Tyson Ertz did for the first time, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.